Hey y'all and welcome to the second season of the Source Code Podcast. My name is Chris Sanders. I'm really excited to have you back for the second season. I uh, had a cu- good couple months away from the podcast. really gave me an opportunity to sit down and go through some of the previous episodes, take in some feedback from some folks. And it, you know, it all sounds like everybody really loved the podcast. I get good feedback everywhere I go. Um, I don't go to a conference at all these days without someone coming up to me and saying, oh, hey, I loved you know the episode with Doug Burks or, or Jason Smith or Megan Wu, uh, everybody seems to kind of have their favorite episode from the first season. It looks like everybody kind of walked away with something useful. That's great. Uh, that's really good. I'm glad people can really connect with these individuals we're interviewing here. Of course, one of my goals is to kind of build somewhat of an extensive library of these origin stories of the people whose work uh, a lot of us benefit from. Uh, I think that's really valuable to building a broader knowledge of uh, b- broader body of knowledge for the community. So we're going to keep doing that. We're going to keep doing origin stories um, in a similar format. We're going to try to do that in uh, you know hour long chunks. Uh, but I'm going to bring a little bit of something new to this season. In particular, we're also going to focus a little bit more on the future as well. Not just how the people I'm interviewing got to where they are, but also their thoughts on where they're going and where the industry is going. Some of the big problems we face today and you know what becomes of that. What does that look like in the future? I think these are important topics and important food for thought. So we're definitely going to look at that side of things as well moving forward. I also want to take a moment to welcome on our newest title sponsor, uh, ninjajobs.com, a premier provider of cybersecurity jobs. It's a website I'm very familiar with. I'm a huge fan of what they're doing and how they do it. And they've agreed to come on as our title sponsor for uh, the entire second season. So you'll certainly be hearing more about those later on in the podcast. We've also brought back CloudShark, who sponsored last season. We're glad to have them on with us as well. So with the help of those folks, we'll be able to bring you another really great season with, again, what I think is going to be a really good slate of guests. With that said, let's go ahead and get into our first guest now. Uh, our guest is Richard Baitlick. And if you've ever been involved at all in the field of network security monitoring or really even defensive security altogether, then you probably learned something or benefited from something that has at some point uh, began in Richard's mind. He really pioneered the field of network security monitoring. And a lot of the modern security operations center as it exists today, uh, in some part, can trace its lineage back to some of the work he's done or has been done at various places he's worked at. Of course, Richard uh, came from the Air Force. He worked in AFCERT for a while, also helped stand up uh, the CERT or SOC at General Electric, one of the biggest companies uh, in the United States and the world, and eventually wound up at uh, Mandiant and FireEye uh, for several years, which is where he and I uh, worked together on separate teams, but we both worked there during overlapping time periods. And recently, he's uh, he's moved away to that to, to focus a little bit more on uh, on his family and some other interests of his. So we're going to talk about all of that here as we welcome uh, Richard Baitlick onto the Source Code Podcast. Hey, Richard, thanks for uh, agreeing to join me today on the podcast. I think we have a lot of listeners who are going to be really excited to hear from you. And I guess I have to ask, first of all, you're several months post-FireEye now, and I don't guess really retirement's the right word, but I mean, I think a lot of people want to know you know, what you're doing with your, yourself these days. Uh, I know you, you mentioned some of your martial arts work, but what do you, what do you have going on these days? Uh, hey, Chris, thank you for the opportunity to be on the podcast, and hello to everyone out there. Some people say that I am retired. Uh, I don't... It depends how you define retirement. If you define retirement as having more freedom to choose the work that you do, 
uh, that's, I guess, in that sense, I'm retired. Um, part of what I did was a uh, sort of a swap of responsibilities with my wife, Amy. She had been taking care of the kids as a sort of the primary caregiver for the first 12 years of our, our two daughters' lives. And she had, she had a history as um, uh, Air Force Intel and then FBI uh, counterintel or counterterror, sorry. And she wanted to get back into the workforce. And so I said, well, you know what? I'm kind of burnt out after 20 years of cybersecurity. Uh, I'll, I'll take uh, primary responsibility for the kids and now I can do other things on the side. And uh, in addition to sort of transitioning to other interests that I had. So that's probably that's my number one uh, responsibility for the last, I don't guess, six months now has been uh, taking care of my two daughters. And in addition to that, uh, developing my martial arts offerings and doing a little bit of security on the side, uh, mostly consulting calls with people who want to generally make investments or they want to understand how the Equifax breach will affect the stock price. Um some uh, consulting for a few security companies who are looking to do process improvements or change their offerings. Uh, but the, the main focus has been on the family and the martial arts. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people, and people like you and I think people like me, you know, I don't think you ever really retire. I, I talk about this with my wife, you know, what would retirement look like when it gets there? And she just laughs at me and says, you're never going to retire. You're always going to have tons of projects going on, whether they're security or something else. So I'm sure you can probably relate to that to some degree. <laughs> Yeah, no, I never thought of retirement as I'm just going to sit on the beach or on the front porch or play golf. Uh, it was always more about having the freedom to choose how to spend my day. And I have a lot more of that now. And of course, there's responsibilities in there, but uh, as opposed to, um, and you know what, I suppose if there's plenty of people out there now who who get to choose how to do, or they, they can choose how they spend their work day because they're doing something they love. And that's, that's the best uh, match of your interests and how you spend your time. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and to some degree, you know, now you're you're in a state where you're mostly working for yourself and you don't, you know, you can put time where you want, which means you're not doing, you know, wasting time on things. And I think, you know, when you work for someone else, that's something you have to do a little bit is every now and then you you do some things to placate other people or waste time. And now that you can devote time to your family and the things, your interests, security and otherwise, I think that's got to be just an immensely rewarding thing. Yeah. And it's funny, you, you mentioned the uh, never leaving security. I, I, I see security almost as a language. It's, it's almost like I was a, a Farsi linguist or something, and if I come across something in Farsi, I'm going to read it or listen to it and try to understand it. Uh, so anytime there's any – and obviously the last month in security has been probably one of the craziest months I can ever remember. So there's been – I've been tweeting here and there, and if I get so inclined, I might do a blog post. But just keeping up with what's been happening is – is kept me engaged with uh, <laughs> all, the, all the crazy stuff with Equifax and uh, Kaspersky, and it's just been unbelievable. Oh, yeah. Well, and it's stuff you care about, right? And it's stuff that you not only you care about, you have expertise in, and you have opportunity to help people and, and honestly make the world a better place in that regard. And that's, uh, I got to imagine that's, you know, when you speak that language and someone's having a conversation, then certainly you may want to jump into it from time to time. You know, that's, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, although I have to say, um, I, I often defer to my wife now. I say, well, the, you know, the, the cybersecurity uh, expert in the family is my wife, so uh, she's working her threat intel stuff, and 
uh, please go talk to her. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, cool. Well, let's uh, well let's uh, guys go back in time a little bit, and I want to do kind of what what we do on this podcast and talk about kind of your origin story a little bit. And you you certainly have a very long distinguished career, but um, you know before that all got started, I'd love to talk about you know where you call home. Now I know you're a north northeastern guy, but kind of were you born and raised all in the same place, and where was that? Yeah, I was born and raised in Massachusetts. Um, you don't hear it in my accent. I don't really have a Boston accent anymore, although up through age 18, uh, before I joined the military, I, I sounded as bad as a you know character on The Simpsons with, with my accent. Uh, the, the mayor from The Simpsons is probably, I sound a little bit like that. Um, <laughs> or, or if you hear, you, you watch these bad impressions of Boston accents, I was very much like that. Um, yeah, I grew up in a town called Billerica, Massachusetts. Um, went to public high school, uh, you know, public schools the whole way. And got my first computer. It was a, it was a Timex Sinclair ZX80. Although I, I, th- I think yeah, it was the ZX80 was the first one. It was supposed to be a kit uh, because the kit was a hundred dollars. If you bought the fully assembled one, it was two hundred dollars. My dad was an electrical engineer, so he thought, well, bu- we'll buy the kit. He could build it if he needed to. Turns out that kit was so popular they had sold out, so they sent us a fully assembled model for the hundred dollars. And uh, I was trying to program on that thing. Um, I remember in fourth grade, I, I hurt my foot or something at recess, and I stayed home the next day, and I, I made a little game where uh, it showed a picture of Boba Fett. So this must have been about 1980, if, if Empire Strikes Back had come out and I knew who Boba Fett was. And it, it showed a picture of Boba Fett and you know, these block uh, 8-bit graphics, and it said, would you like to see Boba Fett wave? And if you said yes, the screen changed and his hand went down, then his hand went up. I had a little loop where it waved. And if you said no, I said, well, you're going to see it anyway because I spent all this time animating it. And he waved it anyway. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that was my intro to uh, to computers. And after that, I got a, a Commodore uh, C64. And uh, I had seen war games, I think, in 83. And so I was fascinated with the idea of war dialing my hometown. And so one night I war dialed all of Bill Ricca. So I apologize to all the residents who <laughs> in some, some night in 83 or 84 got a phone call in a tone and didn't know what it was. And uh, yeah, that was my intro to, to security, I guess. Wow. So now is this town, uh, Bill Ricca, is it, was it more urban or was it kind of outside the Boston area? I mean, yeah, it's outside of Boston. It's about 20 miles Northwest. It's a total, uh, it's a blue collar town. Um, the, the best way I can describe it is there's a, there's some footage of our high school football coach, and he's talking about playing one of the neighboring towns that's that's richer. And he's talking about how they have they they drive their Mercedes and their BMWs. And while we're out there uh, filling forms and digging ditches and doing jackhammers, <laughs> so that you know, my wife always laughs. She's like, "You never did any of that stuff." But that is that's really the the sort of the soul of the town I came from. <laughs> yeah, wow, that's that's nice. Yeah, I always knew. I assumed you were from that area because I always knew you were a big Boston sports fan and followed the Bruins and, and all that pretty closely. Um, so that's great. Um, so tell me about what type of student you were when you were in school. Uh, I was I was a fairly advanced student uh, the whole way through. I was my uh, high school valedictorian. We had about four hundred uh, kids in that public high school, and I was the valedictorian. Uh, I was ex- exceptionally competitive in in school, uh, and this is all I can say all this now because I don't feel this way anymore. But back then, I wanted to be the number one student. We had a little core of of fellow students who were all competing for that spot, and I was completely determined to have that spot. 
Uh, I was the first person ever to get an A plus in eighth grade history. This one teacher you said you had to give a hundred average. The, you know, every single test you needed a hundred to get an A plus. So I heard that and I said, well, I'm going to do that, and I did it. Uh, I was I was a maniac as far as school went. Um, <laughs> so in uh, that that served me academically. It got me where I wanted to go or I thought I might want to go. But to tell you the truth, I was completely burned out with that attitude by probably junior year at the latest at the Air Force Academy. And by the time I was graduating, I was I was almost not even caring about school. And then when I went to my master's program, I couldn't care less about grades. I was so completely burned out with trying to get good grades. It was it was ridiculous. <laughs> Tell me about your decision to go to the uh, the Air Force Academy. Was that something you knew you wanted to do from a very young age, or how did you decide to make that decision to go there? All right, so you know the deep delve into my psyche was I felt like I could only be justified by my performance in anything. In other words, if I weren't performing at a certain level, then uh, nobody would love me. That was that was the basic thesis I had in my head. And so I thought, what do I have to do? What could be like the pinnacle of achievement that that I would be accepted? And I thought, well, back then, um, being an astronaut was a huge deal. Right. So I grew up in the 70s. And I remember seeing the the space shuttle enterprise do its first land, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I thought the astronaut program is the number one thing. Now, I was kind of into space. You know, I like science fiction and all that. But I don't know if I was really into being an astronaut i was really more into history but i thought if i'm an astronaut nobody can you know say that uh, uh you know that's that's the place for me so i thought okay well where, where do you go to be an astronaut and i looked into uh, my eyesight was bad so i said all right well i'll try to be a like an astrophysics major or something well, who's the best programs and it was mit uh the air force academy and a couple other places so i applied to those different schools and I got into the Air Force Academy first, although I secretly I kind of wanted to go to MIT um, because it, it was a nearby school and I, I just was kind of into this whole MIT thing. Well, once the Air Force Academy appointment came through, which was a very grueling process with uh, appointments from Senator Kennedy and Senator Kerry and interviews and all this kind of stuff, everyone looked at me and said, you got, you made it. You know, you're the first person in our town, which wasn't really true. There was someone who'd gone the previous year, but you know, you, you're making it out of our town. It's, it's kind of like, um, in Goodwill hunting, you know, Ben Affleck wants to not see Matt Damon at, at you know, it was that uh-huh. whole, that whole, I had people tell me that afterwards too, which really chewed me up. But I said, well, I guess I have to go to the air force Academy. And I, that started basically an 11 year process of the air force that while I I was thankful for my Air Force service and what I learned there and the ability to, to do what I did. Uh, the day I, I was finished, I've got the biggest grin on my face in this photograph. So it was, it took a long time for me to sort of unwind uh, that decision where I was basically trying to fulfill other people's expectations. And how did you get from astronaut and astrophysics to the cert work you did at the Air Force? Yeah, so I... My freshman year at the academy, I had a history teacher. He was a captain, uh, Air Force captain, and I the way he presented history just completely clicked with me. And I said, well, what do you do in the Air Force? He says, well, I'm an intelligence officer. And so we started talking, and, I, and at this point, we still had a Soviet Union. Um, so he said, I think you should be, if you love history, you should be an intel officer, and you, should, you could major in European history, and you can focus on the Russians. And I said, this sounds great. So I, I abandoned all that astronaut stuff, and I locked into the history program, and then I added on a, 
poli-sci major and I added French and German uh, to my, you know, as my languages. So I was, I know that's Russian isn't in there, but it seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> so I graduated and I went into the, uh, well, I graduated, went to a two-year master's program at Harvard, and then I went to intelligence school. And so the, uh, the first assignment I got out of Intel school was to Air Intelligence Agency. And that was at uh, Kelly Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas. And the most interesting thing happening in that at that base was the Information Warfare Center, where General Hayden was, was there, and it's where the Air Force CERT was located. And once I, once I stepped into that room and I saw what people were doing, I was completely hooked. And I spent probably a year trying to get into that unit before a slot opened and I was able to join. Okay. And... You, you mentioned I, I know you're you're a history buff and that's a big focus of yours and it seems like it seems like that was really kind of in the background for for really a lot of your life before you decided to really focus on it I mean is that something that you always just kind of liked history or and you really fell in love with it about this time or, or when did you really fall in love with history I, I think I've always enjoyed history and I can distinctly remember it's kind of a it's kind of unfortunate memory but I remember going to my grandfather's uh, funeral and meeting one of my mom's uncles and he was a history professor and I just was fascinated talking to this guy and of course you know some old dude who's a history professor why would that be interesting at all to a you know I was like 16 or whatever um, but I was just like wow this is so cool and history is as deep as you want to go or you can go as broad as you want to go and cover the whole world so I don't know if it's uh, some kind of a genetic thing like the, my brain is coded a certain way to be interested in that or or just the topic itself. And I've always had an interest in military history, and that might also come up from being raised in Massachusetts where the revolution started, and we would you know, go to all these different historical sites and Old North Bridge and these reenactments of seeing the soldiers fighting the, each other, you know, the Continental and the, and the uh, British Army. So maybe that had something to do with it as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, history, it's such a, you know, I, I don't claim to be a history buff, but it's something as I've gotten older, I've gotten much more interested in and I find myself reading more history. And I think, I know for me, you know, I, I work in, uh, just like you, I do NSM and things like that. And I deal in a world where there's so many unknowns that it's sometimes really great to sit down and read just like a, a list of discrete events that happened and definitely happened. Um, and you have that angle of it. So it's the truth and certainty of events that actually transpired that are very clear. But also I think there's a psychology angle to it too, because then you get into, well, why did these events happen and what was the intent versus what really happened? And you're, you're really learning about the nature of mankind. And I think that's a pretty cool aspect of it as well. Yeah. And history, history is always viewed through the current generation. So in some sense, there, there almost is no truth, because while you, might, you may say that something happened in a certain year or in a certain place, everything around it, like even choosing to focus on that, is a function of the interests of, of the current generation. So when you go back in time and you read, like um, I've been reading an account of Japan, uh, Japanese culture by a Japanese person who is almost thoroughly European. He's familiar with all the great works of English literature. I mean, it's just amazing reading this guy. I have to always go back and check. Is this a Japanese person who's you know writing in like 1906 or something? Uh, but everything he's talking about is through the, the lens of what's happening in the world in 1906. So he chooses to include certain things, omit certain things, put a spin on certain things. But it's all because that's that's his time. And we do the same thing with, uh, with our situation. And even now I've been watching the, the Vietnam War by Ken Burns on, on PBS. And I'm sure that what happens or what's been happening in Afghanistan and Iraq has been informed 
or has been informing what they choose to highlight in the uh, Vietnam War series. Yeah, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. I was just reading, um, I was just reading uh, Jimmy Carter's Reflections at 90, and, uh, you know, I was reading about, you know, the Iranian hostage crisis and things like that, and, and the questions I find myself asking are, you know, we, we look at some of these things in history, and sometimes they're, you know, we read about them, and they seem like a really big deal or a really minor deal, and then you can compare and contrast it today, where, you know, the political climate is everybody's kind of at each other, and there's so much going on, and another thing I often find myself asking is, how will history remember the current moment? Um, it, you know, it, it, it seems like sometimes the world is ending or things are really good or then they're really bad. And, you know, is this going to be just a footnote in history? But I, I don't know about you, but I, that's just something I think about constantly is, you know, 100 years from now or 50 years from now, what will history remember about, you know, X event that I'm currently experiencing? Yeah, I, I think with respect to uh, cybersecurity, people are going to look back and say we had it so easy because, we are still at a point where there can be a segregation between physical and digital. Um, we don't, for the most part, have implants. Uh, I mean, there are people with, with um, internet-connected heart monitors and, and some other medical technology, but we don't have sort of direct access implants in our brain, which I think will be, you know, every science fiction writer believes that's going to happen, it seems, so it'll probably happen. Uh, all of these different areas of our lives that um, you can live a a decent life, I think, without being digitally connected. Now, it's tough to manage certain aspects of your life, but you could be on a farm and, and do whatever. But I think that's going to be progressively less possible. And as as the world continues to um, bring these technologies forth, the security aspects of them are going to get worse and worse and worse. And we'll look back fondly on the day when or on the days when you could, say, instrument the network and have a decent idea of what's happening and not have to worry about, um, you know, instrumenting your brain or, or any of that kind of stuff. I think the challenges will, people say it always gets more complex, but um, I don't know if it's necessarily more complex due to complexity or just due to s scale. And the, the scale is what, um, the scale is what seems to be uh, not stoppable. Yeah, I mean, the tech, the technology even aside, I mean, you think about the, the legal ramifications. I mean, think about surveillance laws when people have implants in their brain. Um, that's that's a little frightening to kind of comprehend both on the, you know, the good and the bad side of that. Yeah, that's right. You wonder, would there ever come a time where people say, we're going to grant authority to law enforcement or intelligence community or the intelligence community does it anyway, instead of going after someone's device, that device is part of them. And now you have a foreign intel agency or your own law enforcement or intel agencies inside people's brains, um, maybe they get wind of like a, a, a terrorist plot or something and they, they even worse, they have the capability to interact with the brain to change the memory or mm -hmm. to alter uh, the plan. I mean, these are all things you think about like, Oh my God, this will probably be possible at some point. And what does that mean? And this is where like the whole Snowden argument that if it's not in technology, it's worthless. I don't know if that'll be possible. I think with technology, you'll be able to do anything. So you're not going to be able to stop the technology. It's going to all have to come back down to policy, legal, oversight, all the stuff that you know makes a functioning democracy. Yeah, which I think, and I guess that's part that probably scares most people when they think about the future is we, we, we don't do really a good job right now of legislating a lot of the current aspects of cybersecurity, let alone many other things in life. So how are we supposed to expect? I mean, the thing I think you always say is if you can't afford or don't have the ability to protect it, don't collect it. And, 
you know, you wonder, you know, are we going to get in a situation where we have these implants that have all these things going and have no way to, you know, securely monitor them and protect the, that interface, especially if it's an interface that allows some type of interaction with the brain beyond just reading signals from it. Yeah, that's right. I, I think the car model, not the, not the car model of everyone talking about car safety as internet security. I hate that with a passion, but I think the idea of, I think the, the security of the car, you know, that that attack model is a good one to to work on uh, if we can figure that out both technologically and pol- and politically and, and legally that will serve as a good model for a lot of other areas um, just as something as simple as why should it be possible for uh, charlie miller to be able to access every car in a certain network that should just not be able to happen i mean we know from a network that that's a bad idea you know without any segmentation you just you expose the entire world to you know one rogue system inside a network so it's i think it's similar that you should not be able to touch every car every heart monitor whatever so there's certain there should be s- certain simple principles that we can bring into this discussion technologically uh and then if if they're not inf- enforced technologically then you have to go in through insurance policy these uh non-technical tools I want to pause for a minute and tell you about one of our newest sponsors, Ninja Jobs. Now, y'all know my advertising policy on this podcast. I only advertise for things that I actually like, and I really like Ninja Jobs. It certainly falls in that category. Ninja Jobs is the premier job platform used by thousands of cybersecurity professionals. And that's whether you're looking for a job or trying to fill one, Ninja Jobs has you covered. If you're considering a change in your job or just looking for your new challenge, or maybe you just want to see what's out there, Ninja Jobs is a free platform with hundreds of jobs posted weekly. You can register for free and begin your search right now. Now, on the flip side, say you're struggling to find top talent for your organization. You're having trouble filling a specific position. Skip the recruiters and head over to Ninja Jobs. You can register for free, and you actually have a special promo code for listeners of this podcast. The promo code is the source T H E S O U R C E the source, and that'll give you ten percent off your first job listing. If you're looking for a job or looking to fill one, I highly recommend you spend some time and look at Ninja Jobs. And now back to Richard. We were talking about your time in the Air Force, and you got into the, the CERT type work, and you worked with AFCERT for uh, quite a while. And I guess that was where you really uh, – that's where you met a lot of the people, I think, who are kind of the NSM and security paragons that, that we all hear about and uh, use their tools today. Um, what was it – You know, in, at some point, you transitioned out of that into the corporate side. Um, do you have any overall thoughts on just your experience, you know, defending networks that you can talk about from your time with AFCERT about what you learned there and kind of the perspective it brought to you? I, the the number one lesson I learned in the AFCERT was we were always under attack that uh, if these guys wanted to get in, they would get in and that we had to uh, that prevention eventually fails. <laughs> so if if you go in with the mindset that these guys will always get in, what does that mean? You need ways to find them quickly and stop them before they cause serious damage. And uh, in terms of sort of threat actors, I was, uh, you know, right away we were dealing with the Russians and the Chinese. I mean, the very first day I sat down and, and I was between two analysts, I turned to one on the right and I said, what are you looking at? And the analyst said, I'm looking at the Chinese hack into one of our web servers. Okay. Turn to the left. What are you looking at? Oh, I'm looking at the Russians scan for a Solaris vulnerability on all our systems. Okay. So right away, uh, I was introduced to who's out there doing bad stuff. Oh, and 
we also had all the criminal stuff. We had web defacements by, you know, script kiddies who had figured out some PHF hack or something. So immediately getting thrown into that environment, it was, wow, all of this stuff is happening. It isn't like, well, you know, maybe one day we'll get hacked or I'm going to set up my security program. And then, you know, one day there'll be a, something will happen and I'll work my way down this 10 step plan. And then at the end, I'll write a report and then I'll go back to whatever I was doing. It was nonstop. I mean, we, we were getting hammered all the time. Uh, and so the, the pace of the operation, the types of people who are working it and seeing how uh, we evolve processes and tools to support the people who are doing the mission, that all came together very quickly. Um, I don't think I fully appreciated the whole network security monitoring um, as a philosophy until a little bit later, though. Um, <clears throat> the whole idea that you can't just rely on alerts, that the best stuff is found through what is now called hunting. Um, all of that took me a little bit longer. So I was at, I was at the app for three years, and I don't really feel like that came together for me until the end of that period. And then definitely when um, after I left and I went with Bam Vischer, uh, we started a MSSP. That's when the whole NSM, uh, as a as a definition and a and the different data types, all of that crystallized because we had to build it ourselves. We couldn't just you know repurpose the Air Force uh, Air Force tools. That's when Squeal was invented. This is all in 0102, um, and that's when Bam and I wrote the first definition of NSM. I wrote the first uh, published anything on NSM in in the Hacking Exposed Four after I went to Foundstone. Um, uh, in O2, late O2, uh, that's when that stuff started to come together. You mentioned three words during that, uh, what I think are probably three of the most important words in information security, which is prevention eventually fails. Um, that when, I, I, when you were doing the AFSERT work, I think that was something that obviously a lot of people, especially outside of the military, at least refused to accept. And I think that's something that to some degree has permeated society a lot more and that I was, you know, I was sitting last Christmas with my wife's grandmother who's 90 years old and somebody had just got hacked and she was reading the story and she looked at me and knowing what I do, she said, you know, Chris, I think, uh, you know, I guess this is one of those things where if somebody wants to get in, they're going to get in and you can't do nothing, anything about it and you can just hope to control the damage. And I'm like, oh, wow, well, this is my 90 year old wife's grandmother <laughs> explaining that prevention eventually fails. That's pretty cool. Um, so that's, I think that's obviously a good thing that the general public is starting to realize that much more than they did, you know, 20 years ago. But I still encounter people all the time, business leaders, and, and, and who still believe that it's protection or nothing. Um, yeah. is, that, is that something you still see a lot of? And, and I mean, what 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 gives there? I mean, what what do you think people are so reluctant to accept that? You you still see it at the business level. I think that's right. Um, they think, why can't you just do this? And when I say that, I say, well, why don't you just make a profit? You know, why <laughs> why don't you just take over your industry? And they're like, well, I don't know. Um, I, it's taken a while to get that through at the practitioner level, and I think it's just personal experience in addition to some training. But I can distinctly remember going to Foundstone in 2002, and Foundstone was essentially a, a vulnerability assessment company. They had software that did scanning, and they, they did red teaming. And then there was a little group of people, four people off to the side, uh, Kevin Mandia, Julie Darmstadt, uh, Keith Jones, Matt Pepe, and then myself, I became the fifth that if all that stuff failed, then you called us and we were the Foundstone IR team. But if you were to try to promote IR, you know, detection and response as a business, it was really tough. I mean, that's why uh, MSSPs had a hard time in the beginning with um, selling detection services. Uh, there's like, if you can, the classic line was, if you can detect it, why can't you stop it? 
and you know we could go off on a whole tangent about that but um that was the that was the mentality so we had to it, it was that's why people thought kevin uh, mandy was crazy when he founded um mandy in 2004 they said you, you're gonna have a company that just does detection response who's gonna buy that i mean you should be stopping all this stuff that's what security is for and it's you know it took about 10 years before people really accepted that i think at the the uh, the operator level and the business people are there are certainly enlightened business people i would say at the CISO level and then even some in the other CO positions who who get that but um, you know maybe it's generational maybe we'll get to the point where enough of the people of our, you know you our generation are uh, in those positions where we can say look we have to structure a program around that premise yeah. Well, and I mean, I guess we're getting to the point now where you can't open a newspaper or, or log on to CNN or Fox News or anything, you know, without seeing a breach every other day, it feels like. Um, they just keep coming. I, I feel like the second it gets a little slow in InfoSec, then we have an Equifax happen or something like that. Yeah. And so here's the thing, though. We, we have to be careful not to confuse breach with um, – all right, let me put it this way. You can prevent breaches. The problem we find is that um, – or the, 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 the missing piece is that you have to be able to find and, and stop the intruder before he accomplishes his mission. Intruders are, are gaining unauthorized access all the time. And, but thankfully, not all of them are lightning fast. Um, you know, years ago, I used to say the fastest high-end intrusion we ever saw was seven minutes. That was from no access to mission completion. And that was extraordinary. Uh, but thankfully, it was an outlier. Now, I don't know what the what the recent statistics are, but it takes a lot of work to go from no access, no prior knowledge to mission completion. So, you know, back when I was doing my Ph.D. research, it still seemed that there were uh, days or, or in some cases weeks that would elapse between when an intruder got initial access to when they finished their mission. So if at any point during that time you interdicted them, you would win. So even though they got unauthorized access, there wasn't a breach. So I don't accept that organizations are having these massive breaches. That That is not acceptable, that something like that would happen to Equifax. I don't blame them because I always blame the intruder, but they need a program that is that is looking for those failures and, and dealing with them before they become catastrophes. So that is the strategy I recommend. Now, if we get to the point where there's something that's so fragile that as soon as you gain unauthorized access, you have everything. Well, I don't even know why that's on the internet. That, there, there needs to be, I mean, that would be the number one question I ask is if you're going to put a service out there that has the capability to go from zero access to complete disaster almost instantaneously, then that's a major architectural failure. That's a, that is an unacceptable business risk. Um, you need to get rid of that. Or you don't have, or you do have a program where it takes a while to go from zero access to breach but you have no capability to deal with that gap, then you are, you know, you're, you're deficient. Yeah. Well, I, and I think the way you describe it there, I mean, if step one for understanding, you know, defensive and, and monitoring security is prevention eventually fails. And step two is that an attacker gaining initial access doesn't mean you've lost. Um, and as a matter of fact, maybe it means you're better prepared to detect what they do next since they're on your home court at that point, And hopefully you have it instrumented to the point where you can do that. And, you know, if there are holes, you can fix them and so on. So I think that's how you put that is, is very good. Yeah. I mean, you definitely don't want to have any unauthorized access. You, you don't want them to get the credentials to your AWS instance or to get remote access to a server. I mean, you definitely want to limit that as much as possible through 
you know, your, your cyber hygiene and your patching practices and all of that kind of stuff, your whatever, you know, defense in depth, whatever you want to call it. Um, because if you have that happening all the time, you can't, there's just too much to deal with. So you have to narrow, narrow the amount of trouble you have to deal with and then have your detection response team deal with the few guys, hopefully that are getting through. And that's one of the areas where you can model that you can say, well, at this level of staffing and this level of proficiency with these tools and so forth, we can handle this volume of bad stuff. But when it exceeds that, we either need to increase staff or we need to find ways, preferably, to decrease the number of, of uh, you know, unauthorized initial accesses that are occurring. Yeah, the very excellent advice. Now, you mentioned you know it was really towards the end of your time at AFCERT where you really started to crystallize a lot of your ideas about some of the things we're kind of talking about now. Um, I know I may be skipping a couple steps here, but at some point you wound up at, at GE, and I think you know pretty much anyone who who follows network security monitoring or defensive security, they probably know at least a few names who came through GE. Um, I think most of the, the key players in, in that space can trace, if not them themselves, trace some of their learning and their origins back through GE. So would it be safe to say that GE was kind of the the manifestation of, of really, you know, what you learned at AFCERT and, and your idea of what a SOC should look like given the tools and technologies available at the time? Um, well, I feel like BAM and I built a really good NSM capability at, at Ball Aerospace what, what, right after the Air Force. We, we took 12 analysts who were essentially like college kids or transitioning older professionals. And we made a 24 by seven operation um, with the 12 of them, Bam and myself, and essentially one engineer to keep the, the, the uh, tools running. So that was, that was a really good capability. And we had customers and so all of that was, was pretty cool. GE, on the other hand, was we are facing, it was a situation where we were facing nation state actors, criminal actors, um, every security problem imaginable, essentially, what can we do with that? And so I had to, you know, I was, I took the job because I love the fact that the company was the size it was, you know, over 300,000 employees, uh, offices in something like you know, over 100 or 150 countries. Uh, the scale was was almost exactly the same size as the AFCERT. So when I pitched what we needed to, to Grady Summers, my CISO, I told him we needed, you know, probably more like 300 people, given that the, the AFCERT at that point was about 300 people. And I said, but I could probably do it with 100 because when I was when I was in the AFCERT, it was about 100. And, you know, he laughed at me and the CIO laughed at me. Grady wasn't laughing at me. He was just he knew the, the reality. Um, and he said, you're, you're probably going to get less than 50 which you know, I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do with 50 <laughs> people? But it turned out it was enough. I mean, we did have enough at that point um, through some creative um, sharing of people who worked in the, um, uh, not the SOC, but the uh, the network admin types. We got some of them part-time. We were able to piece together enough part-time people to cover the 24 by 7, plus all the hires that um, I was able to bring in. And just a extraordinary group of people who I loved working with and it was a wonderful just a wonderful four-year uh, experience building that team and, and working with those those ladies and gentlemen what will you remember most about your time in GE in terms of the accomplishment that y'all saw during that time I, what I was most proud of was we went from an IR plan that consisted of a PowerPoint deck and no ability to know what was happening uh, an antivirus-based defense to a 
highly functioning team that was tracking campaigns that had processes to open um, uh, specific, uh, we call them waves. And this is all, by the way, in, in chapter nine. So uh, of my latest, my latest book, The um, Practice of Network Security Monitoring, there's a t-shirt out there that says stay calm and read chapter nine. So chapter <laughs> nine has all the, <laughs> the processes we used to run. But we went from this very, you know, completely just uh, helpless, I, I feel, even though Grady was doing the best he could with what he had. But we went from that position to something that was very um, uh, not automated or mechanical, but it was it, we had playbooks. People knew what to do. We notified the business leaders. We would deal with things quickly. We made the one-hour timeline that our CIO demanded, uh, and we were handling really bad actors. And then we were able to, not just in a tactical sense, deal with it as it happened day by day, but able to step back and have our intel team um, put together a campaign uh, analysis of what was going. So we dealt with it at the operational level. We used those lessons to, tr to feed into the strategic level. And then we took what was happening and fed it back into the business units through uh, blue team operations and internal security consulting. We were doing our own native tool development. That's where um, uh, Dustin Weber and, and um, Jason Meller and, and uh, just putting all that together. It was, I was so pleased what we were able to do with um you know, the, honestly, not as many people as as a lot of other shops have these days. Yeah. And I guess y'all were really I mean, I guess there's no way to know this, but y'all were probably really one of the first private companies to do, you know, intelligence type work in the in the cyber realm. Um, I don't know. I don't think our intel, at least when I was there, I left uh, in uh, April of 2011. Our intel capability was just beginning. It was it was kind of pre uh, cyber threat intel, like that's like a thing now. People have that as a job and it's a title and all that. We had uh, a capability, but we were not uh, we were not where a lot of shops I see are today. We were we were doing what we could, and we had we we were transitioning from being nothing but a consumer of other people's intel to a producer of our own intel. Uh, Aaron Wade was really big in building that, and so that's when you knew when you were giving stuff back to the private lists we were part of or the private organizations we were sharing when we went from just taking all their stuff and doing what we could to, hey, we've seen this. You guys might want to look out for it. Um, and I guess in that respect, yeah, we did have uh, an Intel capability that that reached uh, that level of maturity. Yeah. And I mean, I guess in to some way, I mean, I guess that's kind of the way you want the Intel to be is you want the Intel to be a function of your security program and and not like the whole security program. I mean, we talk about Intel-based security, but really Intel is kind of a function of that, or, or would you disagree with that? Um, I, I, the way I see Intel is you need it to inform defense. If um, it, it can inform defense at all levels. It can inform it at the, the business strategic level, like should we even be doing business in this location because the uh, there are adversaries who are known to operate in this manner, in collusion with governments, et cetera. Um, to the operational level, like when we see activity from this threat group, we can expect to see them again later using these uh, these approaches and so forth. And then down to the tactical level where, you know, look for this. If you see this, it could be these guys. And if it's these guys, we need to take these actions. Um, uh, so it, it informs all of the different levels. And that that's one of the that's one of the reasons why I get so upset when people say, well, attribution doesn't matter. 
Um, I think attribution matters for all of those levels, but the people who tend to say attribution doesn't matter tend to focus at the technical and tool level. Like they, I've had, you know, I saw a Marine colonel who told me, I don't care who it is. I do the same thing no matter who the bad guy is. Well, that's very, you know, tool and tactical focus, Colonel, because, yeah, sure, you're, you are going to patch no matter who the bad guy is. You are going to try to detect respond no matter who the bad guy is. But if it's a certain group, maybe they're going to come back with a certain approach. If it's a different group, maybe they'll try something else. So wouldn't you want to know, you know, what these guys, you know, do these guys have the capability to escalate, to create their own zero days? Do you want to know that these guys have the ability to go completely out of band? and place a physical device that uses a satellite link so that none of your network-based technologies are going to see them because they're they're communicating with a rock outside the, the base perimeter. I mean, that's the type of thing I think you'd want to know. Um, so you have to you have to think about that at all the different levels of conflict. I want to pause for just a second to tell you about CloudShark. I love CloudShark. It's just like Wireshark, but it's actually web-based, so it can often get you to the answer you're looking for quite a bit faster and it also allows you to pass around URLs instead of files which is a lot easier especially when you're dealing with large capture files. I actually used CloudShark when I was writing my book Practical Packet Analysis and I use it at home in my lab to organize and index my packet captures. It's really convenient, has a lot of really cool advanced features like a deep search for matching packets with standard filters and an ability to do IDS signature matching within your packet captures. It's all really great stuff. Now they've created a coupon code just for listeners of this podcast. The code is source code 17, source code 17, and listeners of this podcast will get 20% off their first year of CloudShark if they sign up for a yearly count. That's a total of four months for free, and it's a really great deal. Again, I'm a huge fan of CloudShark, and I think you'll like it too. And now, back to Richard. Talking about intelligence is probably a good segue into your transition to Mandiant. Um, what I know you obviously had a previous relationship with Kevin Mandia and, and, and some other folks at Mandiant, but other than that, what made you want to join the mission that they had going on there at the time? Well, I always believed in Kevin's uh, vision and his he he really wants to save the world. And I had loved working for him at Foundstone as part of his IR team. And I happened to run into Travis Reese at, I want to say it was B-Sides Las Vegas or something like that during uh, RSA. And he said, how are things going at GE? And I said, actually, they're not going very well because because Grady um, Summers had left. And I said, um, what's up at Mandiant? And he said, you should come on over. And I said, uh, do you have a CISO? And he said, no. And I said, well, how about if I become the CISO? And that's how that's how I joined Mandiant. And um, <clears throat> yeah, that was it. <laughs> that sounds like a pretty casual conversation. Casual conversation for a career change. <laughs> it, it almost literally happened sitting at the panel table before the panel started. Wow. Well, I mean, I guess that's the power of, of knowing people and believing them. And I think, I mean, I think most people who have, who have met Kevin and, and you know, when, when you say he wants to, you know, save the world, I, I worked for, for Kevin for a while and that, um, I think that's a great description. And he's one of those guys who not only does he want to save the world, he wants to recruit as many people, uh, to help him do that as possible. And he's just a very motivating guy in that way. Yeah. And, and I really, I really connected with the, the Mandiant mission, you know, the, 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 uh, the type of work that was being done, that IR consulting, there's really nothing like it, I feel. The um, thinking that we were really trying to do something that mattered was was so appealing. Um, the consultants are so smart. Everybody that was there was, was really dedicated. And um, I was able to put together a little team 
to do, you know, defense of the, um, of the, the company itself. So I, I, uh, uh, I hired Doug first as my, uh, he's my deputy, but also he built the NSM side. And then, uh, Danny Jackson, she, I knew nothing about compliance and all, you know, all that stuff. I was like, I need somebody. I found her. She was awesome. Uh, Derek Coulson, he ran all of our infrastructure. And then we, we brought in Scott Runnels to do basically a little bit of all of those. Um, and that was it. That was our team that was defending Mandiant, which, you know, you think, okay, well, it's Mandiant, right? But I mean, Mandiant is like any other company. They, you know, we, we've got users and infrastructure and interest from all the most interesting threat actors. Um, so it was, it was quite a, you know, quite a, a challenge. Yeah. I want to say how, how does that compare to your time at the air force in terms of, I mean, obviously, obviously we know the DOD is a target, but maybe, I mean, y'all are going out there and you're outing all of these sophisticated threat actors who then have the capability to turn their focus to you. So that's, I know that's gotta be, uh, an interesting and unique challenge. So what was it like? I mean, was it at least, how does it compare to what you were doing at the air force? Uh, so Mandian. What struck me about it was we had a little bit of a deterrent effect, I believe, because we had consultants who were known for finding various actors. So I think the adversaries felt like they have to bring their A game. And in that respect, sometimes they just decided not to go for the network and they went physical. So we had, uh, and this I've said this before, so I don't think I'm necessarily revealing anything super secret or whatever, but we had attempts, you know, physical attempts um, to try to infiltrate, uh, the company, you know, trying to, and I've, I've said this before so that other companies are aware of this. You got to be careful who you hire to be a software developer, because maybe that's a, a threat actor agent. Um, so we had that sort of thing. People said, well, they're probably really good computer security wise. Let's see if we can hit them through the HR process or, or whatever. Um, we had very overt attempts. I mean, we had a, a visitor from the Russian embassy who just walked right in and said, I want to learn about Mandiant. And he gave a business wow. card and it was a, a KGB Lieutenant Colonel. And, uh, you know, the receptionist says, well, wait here. And, and <laughs> I mean, just, just crazy stuff like that. Uh, and then of course, when we released the APT one report, we got, uh, just DDoS like you wouldn't believe. Um, and, and thankfully, uh, Cloudflare was able to help us. We contracted with them and, um, you know, they were able to keep the, uh, the website up and the report up and all that, but I don't, I don't necessarily know who was behind the DDoSing, whether it was the government trying to suppress the release of the report or whether it was just, you know, disgruntled, um, individual actors who, who wanted to try to blast it off the web. Well, let's talk about the APT one report. We talked about history earlier and moments in history that you remember. And I know for me, I'll remember the release of the APT one report is probably one of the more significant uh, events in, in computer security history uh, for a lot of reasons. I remember where I was when I, when I saw the tweets that it was out, I was, uh, I believe it in guardians at the time. And I remember pulling that up and just pouring through it for hours. Uh, that was a huge moment. What was it? I guess, tell me, what was it like leading up to that? Maybe the decision to actually release that information? Because really nothing like that had ever been released to the public before that I know of. Yeah. Um, you now, of course, the um, Dmitry Yalperovich had done great work with like Night Dragon and, and uh, stuff earlier. So there was there were some precedents, I think, for, for this sort of report. But we were very conscious of what we were doing. Um, the Intel team did just an outstanding job putting it together. Uh, I was one of the editors, so I... Uh, the one thing I remember changing was um, I, I recommended that we say that they were poor choices that were made by the, the Chinese operators as opposed to maybe a little bit more pejorative term or, or whatever, <laughs> because I didn't want to necessarily anger these guys. And they were, you know, sort of mistakes that they had made. It wasn't like they were being idiots, although 
you know, there's probably some 18 year old Chinese operator who wasn't being an idiot checking his Facebook account from, you know, a victim computer. But anyway, um, we were very conscious of what was happening. We had decided that this was something that needed to be done. Uh, Kevin and Travis were very, very clear about that. And they were upset that there had been so many denials by the Chinese government. Like if you, you know, if you say this is happening, you should show the proof. Uh, at the time, I believe we were investigating or had helped the New York Times deal with their intrusion. So we knew that all kinds of cre- you know, shady stuff was happening, although the group that was in the, the New York Times was not APT1. Um, but we, you know, obviously it was the same government. Um, I think that as far as the impact goes, we knew it would have an impact in our community. We felt like the security community is going to read this and they're going to think, wow, this is pretty cool. I don't think any of us knew that it would explode into the wider consciousness and be on CNN and all of that. That was uh, that was extraordinary. I don't think we were ready for that. Yeah, I mean, it was certainly. I, I remember seeing, you know, I, the report came out, and I think it was the next day or the day later. You know, it was it was Kevin and, and you all over the news, and I'm like, wow, this is this is a big deal. <laughs> um, and that was, um, I know, I expected. I was kind of with you. I expected it to be a big deal within our circle, but once it got mainstream, that was um, that was that was something. Yeah, I, I think it was the building. Once you were able to link it to a physical location, then the news media could really latch onto it and they could visit it. And the, and the footage of of the reporters visiting the building and having the PLA soldiers run out and the reporter saying, go, go, go to the taxi driver. <laughs> and the taxi driver slows down and the, and the reporter gets pulled out of the taxi. I mean, that's when we knew we had something, right? Because you, you were getting people to visit. And then there were subsequent reports, which I, I put in my blog, where people did follow-up reporting. And they found individual operators who, who, had, who had essentially kept blogs of their activity, of what it was like to work in this building and how they were so bored. And they missed their girlfriend and who was you know, back in some rural part of China. And all the derivative reporting was great, too. Um, so yeah, that was, and I just remember being exhausted by the end of the day, uh, you know, after every day, because, you know, going from one, um, news location to another. And I remember in one of the interviews, I think it was a PBS interview. I was just dog tired and my mom watched and she says, you look terrible. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I'm, I'm really tired. This is, you know, the f- fifth interview of the day or whatever. And I'm, you know, you're staring at a little, uh, you're in a, a small room with a camera in front of you, and you're staring at this camera. You can't see anything. You don't know what, what you look like, or and you're trying to you know stay focused and answer the questions that are just coming in through an earpiece. And uh, I have a lot of respect for people who do those regular um, regular TV circuits where they have to comment. It's not as easy as it looks. <laughs> yeah, I, I believe believe that. So the APD one report really kicked off. I think what you refer to a lot of the time as the, the revolution in private intelligence. And I know that was maybe going on to some degree before that, but that's, I don't, at least for me, that's the point I look at where that was really like, Hey, this is a major thing now. Um, now there's good with that. Obviously you mentioned some of that here. Obviously you get more people looking at this data, analyzing this more collective intelligence power. That's a good thing. Um, but you know, what about some of the, the bad with it? I mean, obviously we talked about attribution a little bit. Um, you know, everyone looks at, Mandiant to some degree now is kind of the the people who blame stuff on China, right? And and you know just like I mean I worked for Mandiant, I know the people who made those decisions, and generally based on really good data, right? So like there's reasons for that, but obviously uh, you know there's the famous meme of you that's going around that it was China <laughs> meme. Does that stuff bother you, or, or is it just you just kind of brush it off and move on? Uh, I I used to get bothered by it, but I, nowadays I just think ah. Eh. Somebody was bored enough to put me on a T-shirt or whatever. Hey, great. You know, good job, dude. That's fine. Um, I, I do 
I get a little bit bothered when everyone thinks, oh, we're just saying it's China because we just that's our default stance. Uh, if we had started out with Russia, would it be, you know, it, you know, Mandian always blames Russia. Uh, I don't know. There, there was a time when China was the most prolific threat actor who was they were keeping our consultants busy like nobody else. We were working all these cases. I mean, you, you see certain Mandian consultants now will tweet about, you know, people's mind would be blown if, if it were known what they were working on. And I used to see that all the time. So it was <laughs> it, I mean, it was a difficult line to walk to, to try to maintain a public persona because I liked enjoy, you know, interacting with people, but yet not just want to say, can you believe what's happening? I, I wish I could talk, but I can't. Right. Um, it was a, it was a difficult situation to be in. I, I guess as far as the downsides, one of the downsides is, is that reporters, when they try to bring up these topics, they feel like they need to have some sort of balanced approach. So they'll have a side that is very well informed, great history, um, good data, making a statement like we attribute this to this threat actor. And then they, for balance, they look and they find someone who basically maybe just has a blog and they're saying, no, that's not true. Or, you know, maybe they're the, the VP of operations for DEF CON and they wear a trench coat and this person's saying, no, that, that can't be. <laughs> so they have these two sides and they, they present the other side as if they have any of the thing, you know, any of the attributes of the first side and you're, you know, in the interests of, of balance. And I get, you know, you want to present both sides, but clearly there are cases where you know, that other side doesn't know what they're talking about, or they're talking simply to be the other side. You know, their their role in life is to be the the negative to everything, so they get that attention. They can continue their consulting or whatever it is that they do to to, to pay the bills. So that kind of stuff can be a, a little frustrating. But over time, when that other side is consistently wrong, or they only make it, you know, you see them once and you never see them again, and then there's a new person who pops up to try to be that other side. After a while, you, reputation is one thing that you can have in this, you know, in, in any industry. And I feel that um, there are certain companies out there that have a good reputation and, um, you know, people end up figuring out who they are. Yeah. And I, and I think it's one thing too. I mean, there, there are only a few really big players in this space and, and there are always people who are just going to want to immediately doubt or attack the big players. I mean, I think we see that all the time when, when, you know, Mania's in the news or, or CrowdStrike's in the news, people just want to pile on them just because they can. And that's, I, I hate to see that because I, I don't know. I think we have a, a tendency uh, as a society these days to forget that companies are people to some degree and that, that you know, Mandian isn't just Mandian. It's a company of a couple thousand people and all those people are individuals. And uh, the things we say about the companies impact the individuals. And I, I don't know, I feel like we've lost some of our humanizing of, of companies to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a fair way to put it. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, now, obviously you left, uh, you actually, you know, you and I worked at, at Mandian and then Fire Eye for um, an, an overlapping time period. We actually both left right about the same time. I think within a week of each other, we 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 both left. I mean, uh, we talked a little bit about kind of what you're doing nowadays, but um, you know, what was that a, a really tough decision for you to to kind of remove yourself from the day to day that a little bit and, and and transition into other things and to some of these other things that had kind of maybe just some of them just been hobbies before. No, I was totally burnt out. I was I was so burnt out on security that I was ready for something else. And I think what had happened was security is a very cerebral topic. You get people who maybe they're more introverted, but you know you've got the whole spectrum of people that work in it. But it tends to be a very um, abstract, uh, unincorporated activity. Uh, you know, I can remember doing monitoring work or, or data analysis work or forensic work for hours upon hours and just being completely in my head and totally disconnected from my body. And I think a lot of us 
that probably describes how you do a lot of your work, yeah. right? Is yeah. Working with computers. And so when I was, when I was um, at the Air Force Academy, I did some martial arts. And then in grad school, I, I did martial arts. And then afterwards, for a few years, I did – so I, I probably had like a seven-year stretch where I was doing martial arts fairly regularly. I felt like I was a more balanced person. I had this – you know, I did mental stuff, but I also did physical things. And then I had a period of time where I just had all kinds of health problems. I had bad shoulders. Um, by 2007, I was feeling the first real um, physical effects of what became known later as rheumatoid arthritis. So it's an autoimmune disease which attacks your joints and uh, just makes you feel essentially horrible. Like even if I were to cough, my whole chest would feel just like I was uh, like I was dying. It was so you know so much pain. And so I went through this period where I I got through all that and I started to get a little healthier and I thought about like what did I really enjoy doing physically before I had these health problems or you know was really heavy into security and I realized it was martial arts and so I decided basically it's kind of a new year's resolution in January of 2016 to try martial arts and I said yeah problem of god that sounds fun why don't I try that because I hadn't done that I hadn't done that style yet and the first night I was hooked I was absolutely hooked and so I decided, hey, you know what? This is going to be something I'm going to do. And eventually I decided, I think I want to be an instructor in this. So uh, I've been through the first part of our instructor process, and I help teach classes now. Uh, I'm working my way through to being a full instructor, which I hope will take, you know, uh, there's so many gateways I have to pass through and, and rank I have to get and all that. But I'm hoping that'll happen but maybe summer, early fall of next year. Um, and then earlier this year, um, I decided I would give jujitsu a try. And I have to say there are people in security who are known for their jujitsu, right? Um, mm -hmm. Hoff yeah. and uh, Jeremiah Grossman, yeah. Dave Itell. So I said, hey, if you're in security, you're probably going to try jujitsu as well. So I, uh, I gave jujitsu a try and oh my God, I'm hooked on that as well. I uh, started in January of, of this year doing that. So those are my two that I do. And uh, I'm hoping either to, I, you know, I'd mentioned in a blog post, I might try to open a school. I don't know if I'm going to do that or just help my current instructor and expand his, his Krav Maga school and, um, uh, maybe teach some privates or, uh, I've been t doing some teaching at, uh, companies where we go into the company and we offer classes. Like we did, you know, a four week seminar of, of women's self-defense with their daughters and stuff like that. So I enjoy it so much because it's, it's, it's sort of like reconnecting with, uh, another part of being a person, right? You're not just a mental uh, manifestation. You're also a physical manifestation. So yeah. I highly recommend it to anybody who's even thought about it. Like, yeah, should I try that? Yeah, I would say just give it a try and, and see what you think. Well, there's something to be said, I guess, for having hobbies outside of, of what you do for work, right? I mean, for you, it's you read about history and you're into martial arts. And I know for me, I, I do a lot of cooking and barbecue and I do a little bit of woodworking. And I know um, I can kind of relate in the way that, you know, sometimes I'm just so out of my head and focused on these really deep technical problems that it's really nice to just, you know, get out, get away from the computer, turn off the computer and stand in front of the barbecue pit or, or go in front of the lathe or, or just start cutting up some wood and putting some things together. It's, um, it's, it's very, I know I, I value that tremendously. And I think, you know, eventually when I get to the point where maybe I want to step away, those are things that I can then step into. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It, it was quite a revelation to me. And I heard this in a podcast. I, I listen to tons of martial arts podcasts now because I just find them so interesting. And someone said, like, we have these bodies. It's our vehicle to go through the world. And it's not just sort of a container for your consciousness. Um, so, there's a, you know, if you're, if you're mainly more of a men mentally focused person who is, you know, really just doing security work or whatever, I think it's great to have some type of other activity where 
you know, like you said, you, you're cooking, you're, you're working with wood. Um, I think that's awesome. It, just to have something that even, you know, if you can connect with nature, um, all of that, I think it's, it's a great way to find balance. And you'll also, I think, uh, each side enhances each other, right? You'll, yeah. you'll probably take all that into your security and just feel better about doing it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think a lot of us like to think that our work lives and our personal lives are separate entities that don't impact each other. But I mean, we all, I mean, that's not true, right? I mean, everything we do and one affects the other. Again, it's like you said, one body, one person, uh, the balance is important. And I know I've certainly found that. And it sounds like that's been a big, important thing for your career as well. Yeah, yeah. And of course, it's taken me uh, to age 45 to figure that out, but that's okay. At least I got there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Well, um, one more question, uh, and we'll get you out of here on this one. It's, it's the same question I ask everyone at the end of this podcast. And, you know, a lot of people have probably followed your career and they read your books and they want to say, okay, I want to do work similar to what Richard has done. So, what would your advice be to someone getting into this field in terms of how they can, you know, not follow your exact path, but at least, you know, have the same level of impact that you've had? Um, find, find an area of security that you're interested in and write about it. The reason I say that is security is so broad. There's so, I mean, it's ridiculous, all the different specialties that are out there. So there's, you can't be a security expert. Just find one thing that you find interesting, whether, you know, it's, it's counterintelligence or it's network monitoring or it's reversing binaries or something. Find that one area, um, find people to follow who are good at that already and then document your journey. Uh, that's how I started DOS security blog. I just wrote about things that I was working on, things that I was interested in, what I thought about those areas. And eventually, um, I was able to use that to, I had a consulting business for two years that paid all our bills. I mean, that was, that was my job for two years built, built on people saying, Hey, this guy knows what he's talking about in this area. Um, so some people, they manifest that, you know, that creation, um, they manifest it in code. They contribute to open source projects or they, you know, they write their own open source projects. Other people, they document, they write things. So that's what I would say. And, and the best time to do it is at the beginning because no one has expectations for you. These days, if I write something on my blog, I can't tell you how many times people are going to try to tear me down or write nasty comments or whatever. Back, you know, in 2003, when I started, nobody knew who I was or who ca- nobody cared. I could say whatever I want, be, you know, feel complete freedom. So, that's the best time to do it is when you're starting out is just keep those records. Uh, or if you are writing code, uh, again, nobody has any expectations initially. So that's the way I hired so many people over my career is I just went and, and saw who, you know, who are these people? What are they interested in? What do they work on? And uh, I think that's a great, a great way to start your career. Fantastic advice. Well, Richard, thanks so much for being with us today. I think a lot of people are going to enjoy uh, hearing from you. So thanks so much. And uh, uh, we'll leave you to it. All right. Thanks, Chris. And, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to be on the podcast. Thank you, sir. What a great interview. I think there's something to be learned there, no matter where you are in your information security career. I know there's a lot of things I'll certainly take away from that, and I'll be thinking about moving forward. As always, make sure to take some time and thank Richard for being on the podcast if you enjoyed listening today. You can find him on Twitter at Dow Security. That's T-A-O-S-E-C-U-R-I-T-Y. And go buy his book. He has a really great book called The Practice of Network Security Monitoring, which is available from No Starch Press at nostarch.com slash NSM. A lot of people come to me and say, hey, Chris, you also wrote a book on NSM. Which one should I buy, yours or Richard's? And I say both. There's immense value on reading different books by different authors on the same subject. You'll get different perspectives and that allows you to help synthesize those and form your own opinions. 
I really like Richard's book. I have it on my shelf. And you might say, well, Chris, doesn't yours cover a lot of the same thing? And certainly there's some overlap, but again, different perspectives, different thoughts on a similar topic. You will learn unique things from each one. So definitely make sure and pick up Richard's book if you're interested in learning more about network security monitoring. And again, be sure to tweet at him and thank him for coming on the podcast today. With that said, I do want to mention our last sponsor, and it's one I'm quite familiar with. It's my company. It's Applied Network Defense. We are a practitioner-focused provider of affordable, tailored security training designed to solve problems that matter. So we have quite a few classes. Uh, My favorite is our investigation theory class, where we teach you how to become a security investigator in a tool-agnostic manner. So we don't focus on tools. We focus on kind of the intersection of psychology and computer network defense, skills that matter, matter, how to develop those skills, and how to become a good investigator by asking good questions and knowing how to seek out the correct answer. So investigation theory is open for registration right now. It's run about quarterly. The next one opens up uh, around January of 2018, but you can go ahead and register and get your spot in now before it fills up. We have a couple of other classes as well. Uh, I teach an ELK class, so Elasticsearch, Logstash, and Kibana. It's open now and starts in November. And I have a couple of continuously open classes. So I have a practical packet analysis course. It's always open. You can register and get immediate access. Also an effective information security writing class. We also publish courses by people other than me. Uh, We have a bro class, a bro scripting class. Bro is a really powerful network security monitoring tool, uh, which is really great. Has a huge learning curve though. So we developed a course to help ease that. Uh, It's taught by Aaron Eppert. Uh, The first offering just closed, but we're getting ready to open up the second one, which will start again around January, February. So you can look for that. Finally, we have a new course coming up, uh, a Suricata course, all about intrusion detection with Suricata, writing signatures, uh, deploying Suricata in production, a really great course actually taught by the OISF, the people who create and maintain Suricata. So a lot of knowledge packed into that one. It'll be open here in about a month from the release of this podcast, right around the time Suricon is happening. So make sure to take a look at that. You can learn about all these courses. They're all affordably priced, so you can afford them even uh, on uh, without corporate sponsorship and you can find out about those at networkdefense.io you'll get a list of all the courses there no fluff no marketing junk just real practical knowledge solving problems that matter with that said, thank y'all all so much for listening to the podcast. I hope you really enjoyed this first episode of the second season. We've got a lot of great guests coming up. We're going to be releasing again every other week on this day, uh, so you can plan on that. Go ahead and make sure you subscribe and use your favorite podcasting app and like or, or like the podcast or give it five stars, whatever it has you do there. That really helps us out. Uh, and of course, again, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on the newest episodes. So again, thank y'all so much. I appreciate y'all so much. And remember, it's always a beautiful day to catch bad guys. Take care.